Well, I think, um, I think we'll probably start. I'm uh, delighted to welcome you to this uh, lecture in the uh, Ralph, Ralph Miliband uh, series. Um, I'm sure that uh, my name's Anne Phillips, and I'll be uh, chairing this uh, session. Um, I, I'm sure uh, everyone must know by now, and certainly anyone who's actually come to uh, this evening's lecture will know that this year is the centenary of the representation of the People Act, which was the legislation that gave some women uh, the right to vote in Britain. Uh, the legislators uh, didn't take the radical step of giving men and women the right to vote on the same basis, so men of the age of uh, 21 uh, got the right to vote, but women uh, just over the age, just 30 upwards, uh, and indeed still with a, uh, a small uh, property qualification. So if you were a woman living at home with your parents, even at the age of 30, you still wouldn't be uh, qualified to vote. And I, th I think I thought for many years that this was because the, the MPs thought that um, young women were just too flighty uh, as evidenced by their activities during the campaign for the vote uh, to be trusted with the vote. But uh, I, think, I think in reality the uh, the real thing preying on the mind of the MPs was that uh, if you gave men and women the right to vote on the same basis, uh, women would outnumber men in the electorate, both because women live longer than men, but also, of course, because of the uh, enormous loss of male life during, uh, during the war. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful that we have uh, this evening, uh, we have Rachel Holmes to talk to us uh, particularly about the work that she's been doing with, on Sylvia Pankhurst, which will eventually soon take the form of a book um, on uh, Sylvia Pankhurst, Natural Born Rebel. Uh, the title of her talk is From People's Descent to Royal Ascent, Sylvia Pankhurst and the Struggle for the Vote. And Rachel Holmes is someone who's uh, written uh, many books, I mean, including a biography of, uh, of Eleanor, Eleanor Marx. Um, and... Uh, I'm delighted to uh, welcome her to give this lecture tonight. Thank you, Anne. So I can just, just to, uh, to clarify, uh, Rachel will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we have uh, uh, quite a good time for question and answer after that, before we conclude, just before 8 o'clock. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for that warm welcome. Uh, and thank you, Robin and Maya, as well, uh, and all of you uh, for being here and not sitting in the sunshine, which is probably the more sensible place uh, to be sitting this evening. Um, <clears throat> the argument of this lecture uh, is to correct what I see as a misconstruction of the historical relationship between feminism and socialism in British history and politics. And uh, perhaps topically, given our venue, uh, socialist feminist George Bernard Shaw said, never have an ism and never be an ist. And of course, he was right in so far as we swim and bob around and lose and regain our footing in the daily tide of lived experience and the contradiction of things. But for the purposes of discussion this evening, the ist and isms of feminist and socialism are descriptions of structural approaches of now long historical duration. And as structural analyses, they enable us here to capture the arc of two movements 
that converge in the mid-19th century and in Britain diverge in the early 20th century over the issues of democratization and revolution. Simultaneously, with the rise of 20th century nationalisms and global capitalism digging in its heels for another century, came the splintering into the divide and rule of what are known in that most marvelous of double-think tautologies as identity politics. As I've shown elsewhere in my work on Eleanor Marx, radical feminism began in the 1870s, not the 1970s. The modern British feminist movement, with suffrage as a central tenet of its ambitions, emerged in the 1860s out of the international abolitionist movement, trade unionism, and early socialist organizations, both of the British idealist sort envisioned by William Morris and his followers, and the European models of radical democracy and social revolution, such as expressed in the woman-led Paris Commune of 1870 to 71. And I suppose the campaign for women's suffrage began in earnest in the 1860s with the Mill Pankhurst petition, that's John Stuart Mill and Richard Pankhurst, who was uh, the husband to Emmeline and father to the Pankhurst daughters, of which there will be more shortly. In 1866, John Stuart Mill presented his historic petition for women's citizenship to Parliament. Among the founder members of the Manchester Suffrage Committee were Elizabeth Wollstoneholm, Ursula and Jacob Bright, and the radical barrister Dr. Richard Pankhurst, well known as a far-left-leaning Liberal Party activist of extreme radical views. Lydia Becker and Dr. Pankhurst were close allies, and at that time they were working together on a bill to secure votes for women on the same terms as men. John Stuart Mill's amendment to secure women's suffrage under the Reform Act of 1867 by substituting the word person for the word man had been defeated, but Mill still succeeded in opening up the possibility for a shift in principle. A subsequent amendment to substitute male person for man was also crushed, but under the provision of the Act, quote, words of the masculine gender legally included women, unless the contrary were expressly provided. Now, by the late 19th century, middle-class women had developed an organizing voice. Many successful campaigns delivered the right of women to access some decent secondary and higher education, to enter some of the professions, and the right of married women to own property and vote in municipal elections. Initially, the suffrage campaign emerged in the 1860s as part of a general movement for equal rights, attracting middle-class women and giving a rise to a plethora of factions and rivalries. However, whatever their differences, until the 1890s, the suffrage organizations shared two key strategies. They were constitutional, and moderate in their aims and methods, and they did not seek to include working-class women in their fight for common rights. In 1897, many of these organizations regrouped and folded into the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, an umbrella organization led by Millicent Fawcett. The grassroots pioneering attempts to forge an alliance between labor and suffrage in the north of England changed this landscape of the movement for women's rights dramatically by the beginning of the 20th century. 
working class women had their own organizational traditions in the textile unions, cooperative women's guilds, the mines, and latterly in the independent labor party. The group of women trade union activists working within the North of England Women's Suffrage Society made unprecedented headway in forging a bond between the campaign for women's enfranchisement and trade unionism. Challenging the class prejudices of the established suffrage societies, radical suffragists like Eva Gore Booth, Sarah Reddish, Sarah Dickinson, and Selina Cooper made a determined breakaway movement to forge an alliance between feminism and socialism. And in 1900, they launched a suffrage petition to be signed exclusively by women workers, accompanied by mass campaigning in all the factory districts. And they founded a new organization, the Manchester and Salford Women's Trade Council, led chiefly by Roper, Gorbuth, Dickinson, and their newest recruit and rising political star, Christabel Pankhurst. This may look like neat vodka, but it is actually water. I don't want to disappoint you. <coughs> the purpose of the breakaway organization was to campaign in trade unions on women's suffrage. Like the Pankhursts, many of these women were ILP members, infuriated and impatient at the ILP's malingering on the issue of women's suffrage in its early days. But equally, they were frustrated by the snail's pace of change brought about by the constitutional movement. They wanted to achieve the vote in their own lifetimes. This initiative evolved into the WSPU, founded in 1903 in the front parlour of Emmeline Pankhurst's home in Manchester. And between 1903 and 1917, the Women's Social and Political Union was the leading militant organization fighting for women's suffrage in Britain. Between the 1880s and the beginning of the 20th century, the alliance of the British women's movement with forces of democratization and progress more or less held together. But by the outbreak of World War I, the movement split into two broad contingents that still prevail today, and not surprisingly, are roughly aligned with our leading political parties. I say not surprisingly, advisedly, because there is a trend in some contemporary feminisms to act surprised, dismayed, or even with hostile defensiveness to the idea that it has to be, or de facto is, aligned to broader political ideologies based on economic and social change. The proposition is that feminism can be a politics in itself or is somehow an apolitical movement or a single-issue interest group detached from responsibility for economic inclusion and universal social justice. This position, typified by the tribalism of elites who hog the microphone of dominant culture and are dedicated to radical individualism and freedom for themselves, their children and their friends, is surprising from those who reify the family. It's rather like suggesting that a newborn infant is wholly detachable and can be made autonomous from its mother by the mere cutting of an umbilical cord. Like most offspring, perhaps all of us, the child will spend much of its life wishing it were autonomous and separate, apart from that mythic idealism of the lost primacy of the womb. But wishing does not make it so for either parties, either physically, emotionally, or psychologically. 
we're more familiar, I think, with the visual and political iconography of the suffragette movement in the pre-war years, which dominated British politics from 1906 to 1914. Before we jump to 1918 (coughs) and the advent of the Representation of the People Act that is the occasion of this year's centenary, I'd like to pause a little on the war years themselves and look at the aspects of women's internationalism driven by European socialists. At the time, persistently thwarted efforts were made to resurrect the Socialist International in opposition to the war. The Dutch offered their neutral soil as a place to perform the delicate task of resuscitation in vain, as Sylvia Pankhurst wrote, part weary, part exasperated. The officials of the majority socialist parties in belligerent nations maintained, until the end of the war, their refusal to meet the socialists of the countries with which the capitalist governments of their countries were in conflict. (coughs) The socialist parties of the northern neutral countries led the way by meeting in January 1915 and issuing a manifesto denouncing the war as a product of capitalist imperialism and its secret diplomacy, calling on socialists of the warring nations to be active for peace and to work with renewed energy to conquer the status quo. The leaders of the socialist parties of the belligerent nations rejected this manifesto, led by the British, a conference supposedly representing the socialist movements of France, Belgium, Russia and Britain, issued a counter-declaration strongly supporting the Allied cause and confirming the commitment of socialists of their countries to fight until victory was achieved. When the ILP condemned this manifesto, Ramsay MacDonald, who was a party to it, urged that it be treated in the spirit of compromise, and he urged his critics to take the longer view and just be mindful on the date of which it had been passed. On December 2, 1914, Karl Liebknecht had voted against war credits in the German Reichstag, repeating his refusal on the 10th of March, 1915. And eight days later, on the 18th of March, thousands of women rallied outside the Reichstag shouting for peace. They had been secretly organizing with Liebknecht, who addressed them from a Reichstag window. And as punishment, he was sent to the front, despite his immunity as a member of parliament. Liebknecht and a group of others, including Clara Zetkin and Rosa Luxemburg, had drawn up a manifesto calling for immediate peace without annexation, securing political and economic independence for every nation, disarmament and compulsory arbitration of international disputes. And at Christmas, Liebknecht sent a message to the ILP in London appealing for a new socialist international. In March, a conference of socialist women convened by Clara Zetkin met secretly in Bern. Zetkin, who was at the time the international secretary of the Women's Socialist Organization, joined forces with Rosa Luxemburg of the German Social Democratic Party to convene the meeting, attended by delegates from all factions of warring nations who met in their old fraternity to utter a call for the speedy ending of the war and a peace without the imposition of humiliation on any nation. Women socialists of all countries had overcome the nationalist hysteria of wartime, which held the male leaders of the international in its grip. Clara and Rosa planned to travel together over frontiers to meet with socialists of all warring nations. But then Rosa was arrested. When she came out, she persevered with the conference, 
but social democratic leaders declared it an offence against party discipline to distribute the conference manifestos or attend the event. Meanwhile, a group of women organised on the British front for peace. Emily Hobhouse, Helen Bright Clark, Margaret Gillett, Isabella Ford, Lady Barlow, Lady Courtney of Penwith, and in total 100 women <clears throat> addressed an open letter to the women of Austria and Germany, urging them to join in calling for a truce. A response was received from prominent German and Austrian women. Dutch suffragists, led by Dr. Aletta Jacobs, called for a women's international conference at The Hague. It demanded belligerent governments to call a truce to define their peace terms, the submission of all international disputes to arbitration, democratic control of foreign policy, full political enfranchisement of women, inclusion of women in the peace negotiations, and democratic self-determination of territories. The Dutch and German suffragists agreed to join and pay a third of the costs and awaited the response from Britain to come to the table. The NUWSS represented British women in the International Suffrage Alliance, but rejected the conference. Secessionists from the NUWSS joined forces with Sylvia Pankhurst's East London Federation of Suffragettes and other organisations to answer the invitation from Holland and a meeting at Caxton Hall of 200 women uh, and at a meeting at Claxton Hall, 200 women volunteered to go to The Hague, to the Congress. <clears throat> now, at this stage, Millicent Fawcett, Christabel, and Emmeline Pankhurst found themselves in the unusual position of being on the same side, condemning the Women's Peace Conference, declaring it akin to treason to talk of peace, and gaining widespread publicity for their opposition to the conference. Nina Boyle, in a leader in The Vote, which was the organ of the Women's Freedom League, scorned the presumption of women <coughs> who imagine it possible for them to be an international power, able to take on the vast structures of organized male state power. French suffragists were mostly equally emphatic in their denunciations, but the initiative was met with support from the United States of America, where women tried to lobby their leaders, including former President Roosevelt. <coughs> Nearer to home... Nancy Astor took the trouble of writing to Sylvia Pankhurst to tell her that she would never have invited her to her home had she known her pacifist enthusiasm and intention to join the Peace Congress. Moreover, she added, she was dismayed to learn that the East London Federation of Suffragettes were overpaying their women workers with one-pound salaries rather than the ten shillings a week offered on war relief wages. In 1919, Astor became the first woman to serve as a member of parliament in the House of Commons. Christabel Pankhurst returned from her self-imposed exile in Paris in September 1914, and she spoke, <clears throat> I think rather delightfully, at the London Opera House, as it happens, on the 8th of September, and her adoring fans filed up, presenting her with wreaths, which she laid in a semicircle around her feet, and then she spoke. And when she spoke, Christabel, <coughs> who, as you know, probably had been leading the militant suffragettes in exile uh, from uh, Paris for several years, uh, made no reference to militant suffrage for women at all. Not a word. Prompting the desire of the audience, Victor Duval of the Men's Political Union for Women's Enfranchisement shouted out, votes for women. Christabel rebuked him impatiently. We cannot discuss that now. 
Sylvia listened with dismay to her elder sister's speech. Holy for the war, light, dialectic, as though of some academic political contest, no hint appeared of the appalling tragedy. I listened to her with grief, resolved to speak more urgently for peace. <coughs> now, fairly, at a superficial and potentially useful level, this much-vaunted centenary is a welcome opportunity to flourish the history of the struggle of British women for freedom, justice and emancipation, and politics in media and museum and cultural campaigns. It's been marvellous to see the purple, green and white colours flying again and to see some great feminist women, though significantly fewer men, celebrated and remembered. I think the refusal to celebrate the decisive role of men in the achievement of the 1918 legislation is a reflection of the separatist policy that came in the women's movement when bourgeois feminists split from the broader base of working women's organisation. And don't get me wrong, I'm enjoying the party, but a party is by nature a self-selecting occasion, and this one really is invite-only. It's possible to hold the two positions in place at once, especially in such a fast-moving, disposable media culture where our attention span appears to be roughly a week. We can go along with the opportunity to put women in top place and simultaneously stand askance and take the temperature, maybe an objective assessment of what's going on here and how it reflects on our wider politics. Almost from the beginning, British national media that covered the centenary adopted the apologetic phrase celebrating the centenary of some women getting the vote. This could be heard on the state-sponsored public broadcasting company, which by its mission statement is not supposed to be tied to the interests of specific interest groups, but to present balance. The centenary of some women getting the vote became almost immediately the acceptable mantra. We've acknowledged that this is a partial class vote for a limited elite, comfortably in keeping with the contemporary dominance of single-issue identity politics, and now we'll cheerfully move on as if the qualifier some is not fundamentally a problem. But some is the few, not the many. Do you remember old Major in Animal Farm? All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. I welcome the problem, It's very useful, and it comes at a good time to pause on the question of the prevailing rights for elites over universal rights for all. For some are the few, not the many. Most determinately, it was the questions of class, democratic organisation, socialism, and men's participation in the women's movement that chipped away at the internal alliance of the early 20th century movement. Sylvia Pankhurst always supported the goal for universal suffrage. The women's vote was a desirable staging post along the way to representational democracy, but she could not accept the exclusion of working women from this campaign, even as a tactic. Conversely, in her elder sister Christabel's view, ours is not a class movement at all. We take in everybody, the highest and the lowest, the richest and the poorest. The bond is womanhood. The socialists are fighting against certain evils which they believe to be attributable to the spirit of injustice as between man and man. I am not at all sure that women, if they had had their due influence from the beginning, would not have brought about a totally different state of affairs. It comes to this. The the men must paddle their canoe and we 
must paddle ours. Now, together with this new policy of separatism went undemocratic methods of organization and the specific assertion that middle-class women must speak for all. Christabel had long previously made her decision about the class bias of the movement. She writes in her autobiography, Surveying the London work as I found it, I considered that in one sense it was too exclusively dependent for its demonstrations upon the women of the East End, not coincidentally organized by her sister. The East End women were more used to turning out in numbers, for many of them have done so in connection with labor demonstrations, and at the very beginning of our London campaign, it was natural for our organizers to rely mainly upon them. It was, however, the right and duty of women more fortunately placed to do their share and the larger share in the fight for the vote, which might be, whatever our hopes to the contrary, long and hard. And besides, it was evident that the House of Commons and even its Labour members were more impressed by the demonstrations of the feminine bourgeoisie than of the feminine proletariat. My democratic principles and instincts made me want a movement based on no class distinctions and including not mainly the working class, but women of all classes, as long, presumably, as every woman woman knew her place. The question of vanguardism has struck me very forcibly this year, and I I found it very informative. Uh, When I wrote a book about a Marx who was more of a, a natural and modern Marxist than even her father, I frequently got fairly near the top of an interview, the challenge, but Eleanor Marx was part of the elite vanguard, a proto-Leninist, if you will, a minority leading a majority to rabble, riot, and political fodder, leveling down populism and revolution. These socialists of the Eleanor Marxist sort were a partial, non-representative group, etc., etc. It's fascinating to see that the same charge or even question of vanguardism, never seems to arise in the case of this partial vote. Every time I hear we are celebrating some women getting the vote, I hear that voiceover of Old Major in Animal Farm. It's still okay, apparently, to assert that some women are more equal than others. And these are still live issues. A colleague of mine who represents the GMB union is organizing an event on the 2nd of July which will be the 90th anniversary of the Royal Assent, which granted working-class women the vote. The GMB has a current membership of 640,000, now of whom 50% are women. She writes, I have been moved to organize this as a response to the overwhelmingly white middle-class feminist movement here who have been organizing the Vote 100 celebrations. I really feel that there is a need to highlight that it is not 100 years since my sort of women got the vote, it's 90. And I feel that growing numbers of people will really appreciate an event that takes pride in the history of working-class women and their positions in politics. Simultaneously, we have the rather suggestive image of a right-wing conservative prime minister unveiling a rather diminutive statue of a woman demurely holding a placard which appears to be calling out for help. Hardly surprising, given that she has to stand all alone all day and night as the only woman in an otherwise exclusively male club in Parliament Square. Courage calls to courage everywhere, is what's written on the placard. Poor old Millicent Fawcett isn't even allowed her full quote. Courage calls to courage everywhere, and its voice cannot be denied. 
I'm not really interested in whether she's the right feminist to choose for, uh, for the first woman in Parliament Square. Imagine how odd and out of place the statue is going to look in 10 years' time. Rather, what we should be asking ourselves is why, as British feminists, we are preoccupied with the building of leaden-footed statues at precisely the moment where there's almost a global critique that originated in post-colonial nations about the need to tear them down, to question their symbolism as old, imperialist, and racist forms, and to question and interrogate what they represent. I thought the lazy reporting was even more indicative. The coverage of the event by the BBC nowhere mentioned the basic historical facts. The National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, led by Millicent Fawcett, went into an alliance with a strongly emergent Labour Party in 1912, and it was this alliance between Labour, the ILP, and the NUWSS, and other organisations that delivered the partial vote after the war. I think it seems rather uncomfortable that a putatively respectable media collaborated in this erasure of the role of the Labour Party, unions and cooperative societies in the 1918 vote. Now, as we already heard here at the top, the 1918 representation of the People Act granted votes to all men aged 21 and over and some women aged 30 and over who met property qualifications or held a university degree. There were a few of those. In all, 8.5 million women qualified, comprising 40% of the female population. Now, while it was largely younger working-class women who grafted during the First World War and formed the activist base for women's suffrage from the late 1880s, it was primarily middle-class and aristocratic women who benefited. The legislation did not remove sex discrimination or establish equal suffrage. It entrenched class prejudices designed to prevent the popular majority, the workers, from voter registration. Enfranchisement was extended to women ungraciously, in grudging spirit, in a fearful atmosphere. Middle-class women, it was hoped, would provide a bullock against advancing threats of social unrest, Bolshevism and socialism, escalated by the horrendous death and deprivation caused by the war. Voting patterns demonstrated this to be the case. Between 1918 and 1928, women overwhelmingly voted conservative. So what are we celebrating? Well, in a nutshell, the birth and infancy of modern British democracy. As only 58% of men were previously eligible to vote, 1918 was a watershed in the universal suffrage struggle finally achieved in 1928. Though we cannot pretend that this symbolic victory established the principle of women's equality, we must recognise that Votes for Women was the campaigning vehicle of a feminist movement fighting for justice across all areas of women's lives, health, home, maternity, marriage, education, and equal pay. As we saw earlier, the struggle started with the first petition to Parliament in 1832 and ended in 1928 when women could vote on the same terms as men. It was most intensive during the early 20th century, as activist momentum powered a relentless national mobilisation, as fiercely fought in the Glasgow Gorbals as the Groves of Godalming, liberal governments blocked the women's vote by objecting that this was not a mass movement. In 1908, Herbert Gladstone said, on the question of women's suffrage, experience shows that predominance of argument is not enough to win the political day. 
men have learned this lesson and know the necessity for demonstrating the greatness of their movements and for establishing force majeure. The women's movement responded by delivering the largest popular uprising in British history since the Chartists. Newspapers and police estimated that three major demonstrations in 1908, for example, were 250,000, half a million, and for the legendary Suffrage Sunday convening on Hyde Park, three quarters of a million. The Daily Express praised the suffragettes for providing London with one of the most wonderful and astonishing sights that has ever been seen since the days of Bodicea. It is probable that so many people never before stood in one square mass anywhere in England. It was a festive, ingenious and physically hardy movement from which women's parliaments in Caxton Hall to heckling stunts and ambushing political meetings and social events, electoral hustings and the besieged Westminster Palace all played a role. There was music, theatre, art, festivals, dance, fashion, exhibitions and the Women's Social and Political Union had pop-up shops selling banners, bags and badges There was a hot air balloon dropping 56 pounds of pamphlets over London and a suffragette steamship patrolling the Thames, streaming purple, white and green pennants, taunting Lloyd George as he took tea on the Commons Terrace. It was the greatest political theatre since the French Revolution. And in 1910 alone, there were over 4,000 demonstrations. Now, as we've seen, by this time, the feminist movement comprised several wings the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, presided over by Millicent Fawcett, the Pankhurst-led Women's Social and Political Union and the Splinter Women's Franchise League, the emerging Labour Party and trade unions led by the pro-suffragette Keir Hardy and socialist feminists such as Margaret Bonfield and George Lansbury and smaller-numbered, respectable conservative suffragists and the right-wing Primrose League. There's been an unedifying century-long tug-of-war between pro-suffragists, pro-suffragists claiming it was gradualist constitutional reform what won it, and those who maintain that the alliance with radical franchise and socialist movements and, crucially, militant direct action is what shifted the ground. And I think the centenary provides a good opportunity to resolve at least that argument. Stereotypes about constitutional suffragists and militant suffragettes bear scant relationship to historical truth. The achievement of universal adult suffrage was considered attainable only by socialists and trade unions that supported women's equality. Both the NUWSS and the WSPU leaderships regarded universal suffrage as a utopian socialist daydream. Emmeline Pankhurst started her activism in the NUWSS. Her breakaway WSPU mirrored the NUWSS policy of campaigning for a limited franchise on the same terms as men, while advancing longer-term egalitarian goals. The factional difference, symbolized by iconic leaders, was largely tactical. Fawcett did not feel that setting fire to houses, churches and letterboxes, and destroying valuable property would convince people that women ought to be enfranchised. Self-professed hooligan Emmeline Pankhurst disagreed. Allegiances changed over time. In 1912, as I mentioned previously, the NUWSS allied with the Labour Party, trade unions and others, and it was this front that petitioned successfully for the 1918 Act. 
Yet the contribution of the militants was decisive. By making British women ungovernable, they radicalized feminist politics. Suffragette militancy targeted property, not people. The only deaths were of those whose bravery resulted in self-sacrifice or state torture by forcible feeding. Window smashing, arson, letterbox bombing, railing chaining, hunger striking and art attacks are long remembered and even pompously condemned today. Less recalled are the beatings, abuse, sexual assault and rape meted out to the militants by police, hired gangs of agent provocateurs and in the prisons. They created an awareness of women's oppression in a manner so acute to the power of media and political branding that men's ideological dominance was never again quite the same. Whichever wing of its history flies for you, the successes and failures of the movement are the total sum of its differing parts. These feminists combined working within and without the system, legal suits with marching boots, law-breaking and peaceful petitioning, fights on the streets and at home between the sheets, rebellious agitprop and strategic propriety. The radical convergence of constitutionalism, democratic aspirations, direct action and socialist solidarity created a tipping point in the struggle that drove feminist emancipation. The Pankhursts are useful in two ways. Historically, of course, they were the family party, founders and leaders of what became the militant wing of the women's movement. But they're also instructive because the story of the differences and argument between them, mother, daughters and sisters who fall out politically, provide an archetype of how and why the movement split and the consequences. So I guess I'm saying it's the best of times and the worst of times. The hope for feminism remains in the collective, not the individual. Sylvia Pankhurst wrote, In a flash, I realized the long struggle sustained in the advanced countries through many generations to waken the masses that they might gain control of their national parliaments. I saw them at last make entry into the citadel, only to find it empty, the power gone, removed to an international government wherein the dead weight of backward peoples would strangle all progress for generations to come. Was this the truthful augur of internationalism? Was it thus that privilege and poverty would be buttressed in their ancient reign? Profound melancholy closed down on me. How static was this poverty, cruel and stultifying, with which we warred. All schemes for international arbitration and agreement seemed empirical. The belief flared up, insistent, that only from a society recreated from the root, replacing the universal conflict of today by universal cooperation, could permanent peace arise. Yearning for the golden age of the coming equalitarian society, I passed in thought to the extremist pole, whereat all save a world-embracing social rebirth and reconstruction seemed mere trumpery. Well, trumpery indeed. So how do I conclude? Of course I want to see more women at the top tables of power in the world. But what are the women and men who serve at those tables and build them? 
Feminism without democratic socialism is as nonsensical as civil and political liberties without social and economic rights. Perhaps as empty as a group of women sitting around a campfire debating who should stir a much-watched, almost empty pot. So 2018 is all very well, but I will continue to work and wait for 2028, truly worthy of celebration. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, so uh, we will uh, have... Can I, before I open the floor to questions from you and while you're working out what questions or comments you, you want to make, can I just, can I just sort of uh, just ask something which, which picks up on some of your comments about the ways in which the centenary uh, has been celebrated? Mm. I mean, the, the Representation of the People Act wasn't, of course... I mean, the, the impetus wasn't, of course, to give votes for women. The impetus mm-hmm. was that... You know, the electoral register was way out of date. It mm. was widely felt that it would be deeply politically embarrassing, is probably an understatement, if the soldiers and sailors who'd been fighting in the war were not, were not able to vote in the next election. Um, and, you know, given that they were going through a kind of, you know, new suffrage legislation, and given the kind of the campaign for votes for women... Uh, everyone realised something had to be done about women as well, but it wasn't the kind of the main reason. So that the kind of, in a sense, the big thing about 1918 is the removal of the property mm. uh, franchise for men. I mean, for the first mm. time, a completely non-class-based mm. um, voting for men. But it, it's, it's not somehow been possible mm. for people to say anything about that, presumably because if you say anything about that, well, I mean, I just wondered what, what your, your thoughts were about that. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think that's sort of partly what I was laying out. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, you're looking at it from the, um, the specifics of the political history of the act, um, but I think certainly in terms of what we've, the story that we've been able to tell ourselves, what our capacity... Um, to to uh, to understand what this what this uh, commemoration uh, is um, has has utterly failed to be able to uh, make those you know to, to create a, a a discourse a media story call it what you will that can actually express those things together mm-hmm. but it shouldn't mm-hmm. be impossible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that my investigation is that I think one of the reasons that that happens is because. Um, that that the, the broader coalescence uh, of, of interest, as you say, I mean, like you know, how important this is in terms of the male vote mm. um, has has been subtracted um, from the fact that it that it was this this focus on on women. Okay, thank you. So, uh, open to to you for questions and comments i'm not sure do, do we need do we need the microphones you think we possibly do because acoustics aren't sorry oh the recording then okay so uh when you have uh, we'll wait for the uh microphones to come round when you have a question yes yeah, so. just trying to think how you could do that campaign you know yeah. how you could have what how you could uh, well i mean obviously to say this is a great celebration because all men have got the right to vote but hang on only 40% of women i mean you couldn't just do a simple <laughs> unadulterated uh, celebration of that but it is interesting that this this moment at which the class uh, 
franchise for men mm. goes has just not figured in in the in the uh, commentary and mm. celebration. And that's reminding people of the kind of shared interests that they have. Yeah. yeah. So, who wants to start? So uh, if you could just wait for the microphone to come. Well, I have to thank you for the uh, very interesting uh, conference you have given on women's vote. But I would like just uh, to add something because I'm coming from another country where uh, they have got their right to vote, but According to me, it's not enough because they have to be educated. Because I have heard many times women asking me, for instance, in a place where we have to vote, and they say, which one is, am I going to vote for? Ah, do you, do you, do you show me which one? So I, th I think that in some countries they have to be educated, or at least they have to explain to them what is it about before giving them the right to vote? Yes. And uh, I would like to know if uh, um, uh, the lady who was at the origin of this uh, freedom, that is women, could vote. You see? Because their voices were not, were not heard in the past. And then from this period, when Sylvia... Pankhurst uh, decided to struggle. Is it a, a group of women and men, or just women, who begin this struggle? Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there's, yeah, there's, thank you for that. I mean, there are two. There are two questions in there, aren't there? And the one about um, voter education is really important, and. I think, I mean, Anne will know more about this than I do, but we can see wherever it happens in the world, and that would include in the history of Britain, that when new groups uh, have, have access to the franchise that you do need, and in, often in cases had, uh, you know, structures of voter education to, to teach people how to engage with it. So that would be natural. Um, and I think, again, it would be something that people who had not... Um, I mean, I come from South Africa, and we just celebrated our uh, 24th um, uh, Freedom Day, um, and, and that got me to thinking about those huge voter education campaigns and the whole structure of how uh, the whole campaign was put together for the first democratic uh, non-racial elections, um, and that you're, if you're in at the start, you can see what, what, what needs to be done uh, in order to do that. Um, on the second point, I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that women's voices hadn't been heard. I think you can go back 4,000 years in history and hear some quite loud women's voices, um, but um, they, they mostly might be queens. They, you know, they mostly might come from a particular, um, a particular background, a particular place, and that's not always true either. I think there's a much longer history uh, of, of organization um, across classes 
if, you, if one wants to call, about, call it that, um, then we, then we necessarily, have, necessarily have record of in our, in our, hist in our written history and, or in, in the way that we consume our history around ourselves. Um, but I think that in, in, in broader terms, certainly in Britain, you can go back three or four hundred years and see that there, it, it's not just a question of women being silenced, it's who the women are who are, who are speaking. And so these other issues of class and race um, and, and, and other forms of ideology and political allegiance come into it. So just, can I just sort of throw in here a, a sort of an anecdote that will rather reveal my age? But um, when, when, I was, uh, um, when I was at university doing an undergraduate degree, uh, it was at a time when in Switzerland women still didn't have the right to vote. So it was before 1971. And I, I have a very vivid memory of the kind of the, the seminar group that my politics tutor kind of organized this discussion in which we were asked to debate, given that all the evidence was that Swiss women would be more likely to vote conservative than Swiss men, what did we think about whether, as a progressive, should you support women having <laughs> or would it be better to carry on with a male suffrage and have more support for the more progressive parties? And I'm glad to say that it must have, it must have struck me at the time as a completely outrageous thing to do because the memory of it is still very, very vivid in me. But I think, I think there's, it, very often there are, there are these ways in which people use as kind of some kind of alibis in reducing the significance of having universal suffrage in mm. which men and women alike have the, the mm. same right to vote by worrying about whether women will vote this way or that mm. way or whether they are sufficiently um, engaged in politics and so on. And we shouldn't... I mean, mm. it's not an alibi. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's going back to what you were saying, it was an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? it that if, if, all, if the votes had not been limited... Yes. If it had been a hundred, if it had, if it had been a hundred percent women uh, in 1918, it's kind of you know really interesting to sort of think through what the implications of that might have been. Well, whether whether the Labour Party would have gained as many seats as it did in the early twenties, <laughs> or more. <laughs> yes, there's one over there. Three very quick points. There was clearly something in the air after the war. Um, lots of countries had male suffrage, and they, they extended the vote for women in 18, 1918, 1920, 21, and so on. The US, Germany, lots of other places. France was a bit later. We've heard Switzerland was a bit later. Why was that? Was it just the war, or was there something else going on? Um, Bolshevik Revolution. Well, there was that too. Um, <laughs> now, that's why. That's the answer. If you're not going to celebrate 1918... You're going to wait till 1928. Can you also celebrate 1919 in the Sex Disqualification Removal Act? I think that was a, a big step on the, the path to recognising that women are, in fact, people uh, and can do stuff uh, and don't just have to stay at home and look after children. And then the last point, um, it's interesting that we've had two female prime ministers and they're both from the right and not from the left, and I wonder why that is. Okay. Um, well, as I said, the, the answer to, uh, as from my point of view... <clears throat> in shorthand around, around that, that question of uh, male universal suffrage, at least, in 1918, uh, is to take ourselves back to the Holy Terror um, after this absolutely like disastrous war 
um, that, that um, for want of a better word, the establishment were, I mean, you know, the, the, there were Soviets in Glasgow. I mean, the, you know, the world was on the march. And there is no doubt, whichever way we look at it, um, that uh, the, the advent of, of, of the October and the, the Russian and Bolshevik revolution was absolutely decisive um, in, um, in, in that case. Um, yes, I mean, um, it seems, I, I think that, I mean, there, there are other, in fact, there are other centenaries that could be celebrated this year, uh, such as the November Act, um, when women were actually allowed to be, you know, were actually allowed to be representatives in Parliament, uh, because the, you know, the, the representation of the People Act did not cover that. Um, and one of the things that I rather like about this, and Anne, you might remember the exact age, I can't remember, but under that, we had this delightful situation where women who, who were younger than the age they were allowed to vote could actually sit in Parliament. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Men and women could, uh, could be MPs at the age of 21. Yeah, yeah. But, they could, yeah. But, the, but, they couldn't, but the women yes, couldn't vote. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so, that would be, so that would be another one and alongside, uh, alongside the ones um, that you mentioned. Um, as to the question of why we've had two extreme right-wing conservative um, uh, women uh, prime ministers, it seems um, quite straightforward to me um, that uh, if your um, method of approaching the world um, is not to, literally not to rock the boat, uh, is to reproduce, uh, your, your political objective is to reproduce the interests of the existing society uh, and, and values within it, and your, your job you do not see um, as, as contesting, particularly uh, ideas about what the proper and right role of women uh, and the family and children and all those kind of values are, then um, it's not really uh, it's not really very hard uh, to see why it's a non-controversial uh, and, and not and, and not challenging uh, a position uh, at all. Um, and um, I don't want to be cheap about this, but we are in Britain and we like nannies and we like strong mummies. Um, and I think that some of the, you know, some of the iconography uh, that, that has gone along with this, neither, uh, we'll see what happens with the Maybot, but um, as concerned Margaret Thatcher, you know, the role models that she took on were not uh, notably in any way drawn from a democratic uh, figure, women figures uh, at all. So I think that um, that one rather proves the point than, than, than disproves it and, you know, and is, and is uh, one valid to raise. It's quite interesting, I think, looking at the um, constitution of the cabinet at the moment since... Um, who left last week? Amber Rudd, that's right, yes, okay. So, um, uh, as, you know, it's quite interesting, um, as an associate of mine was saying, that, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost like, a, you know, you look at Theresa May and the remaining women there, and they look like they're in a sort of hostage situation, um, surrounded by these Dauphins who are going to be sort of slugging it out for who's, who's going to be the next prince. Um, but I think it's absolutely essential at the centre of it that um, we, you know, that that's always thrown up and yet at the same time, if you look at the current constitution of the Labour Party, it has 50%, um, you know, uh, the, the, all the women in the Labour Party um, uh, are, are on, the, on the benches and in the House of Commons are more than any of the other parties put together. 
And so the kind of structural programs and the work and representation that's happening there uh, and, and across, you know, at different, uh, in, in that sense, rather than the, that, that leadership is, is quite interesting in relation to the politics itself. One over here, please. Hi. I just want to say thank you very much. I've never been to anything like this before, and it's been really interesting, and I've learned so much. Um, I just wanted to ask, this is a, probably quite a silly question for everyone, but why do more women vote Conservative? What is the attraction? I don't think they do. Mm. I, th I think that, it's, I mean, it's, it's not a silly question at all. I think there were hist it, it's probably based on the fact that because we're talking about a period of history in terms of the limited vote and what voting patterns were then. Um, but most, most, most assuredly, uh, we, we, um, we, well, we would never have had uh, certainly the Labour governments that we have had uh, without women vote. So I don't, I don't think that, that bears out. I don't know if anybody has you know, more. Um, so why in the period of history that you were talking about, just uh, when they didn't want to give the women the vote? Right, because the women who had the vote were uh, middle class and upper class and were not working class women. So they, vote, they voted in their class interests, and that, that was why. Uh, and that was one of the reasons, as Anne was saying, that there was a, there was a, there was a nervousness uh, in, in 1918 that... Uh, because because of the the degradation, the desolation of the war. I mean, the women were the majority. In fact, I think they were almost before the war as well. Yeah, they were. Just women were the women majority of the electorate. Yeah, they were. Um, so there so there was this you know this fear of what impact is this going to have on on society in general. Whereas if you can if you can divide and rule it and you can split it and cut it down and say okay, we're just going to make sure that there are this. These, the, we make a class interest around it um, and, and ring fence it in that way. And so you're almost, I mean, rigging it is putting it a little bit uh, strongly. You know, these, you know, representation does have to emerge. It does, it does have to be legislated into existence. Um, but but there was, it was certainly circumscribed in that way. But I think we would see that the, the story uh, from... Certainly, from after the Second World War, from you know, 45 onwards, uh, if not before, is, is very different in terms of those voting patterns. Though, though I think that may s that your comment about the um, uh, the franchise in 1918, basically giving the vote to middle class women, is, is perhaps slightly overstated. I mean, it was still a property franchise, and certainly anyone who mm. was um, who was renting, living in a lodging house, mm. wouldn't wouldn't get a vote. But if you, were, if you were a ratepayer or married to a ratepayer, and that would include a lot of working-class women. So, um, so it, it, I mean, it is true that, it, you know, that you were more guaranteed the vote if you were middle-class than if you were working-class, but it, it wasn't just a, a middle-class women's franchise. Um, it's... Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, you know, we talk about the right to vote, but little is said about the ability to execute that right. Mm -hmm. um, what do you believe, both men and women, what skill sets do they no need to have to vote appropriately? And I'm not talking about which side you vote on, but what skill set do you need 
to evaluate what's happening in society in general and vote appropriately mm -hmm. according to your belief system. Because I could quite honestly know women who vote at the direction of their husbands, which is not exactly what I think the intent of the right was. Mm. Do you think, I mean, do you think men might vote, you know, at the instruction of their football teams or their mates in the pub or their peer groups or their own interests? I mean, there's always going to be, I mean, the straight answer is there's always going to be a, there's always going to be an education question, but that applies to everything. I mean, that just basically applies to the notion that we're going to have a go at democracy. So, you know, the, I think that um, for me, whether people are responsible or, Ill, or irresponsible uh, or, or spoil their ballot or don't is not the issue. The issue is that you have universal suffrage as a basic entry point for trying to organize um, some form um, of, of democratic uh, representation, and nobody can decide um, for somebody else. But what I think is really interesting um, about the, what really interests me about the, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the very interesting way that you frame the question is that in this instance, and I've seen this happen elsewhere, we can think of other examples where it's related to race, where it's related to class, where it's related to women, that the burden of responsibility is always put on the subjectivity of the voter, as if the representatives, as if the political parties, as if the media who are representing it, as if the people who, it, you know, that is the job of, of, of politics. Um, of and 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 I don't just mean politics in a narrow sense of who of who are the you know the guys and girls who are sitting in in one representative assembly. We have uh, a burden of responsibility uh, to uh, to be to be representing those options and to be making them meaningful. And I think an awful lot of work goes into not doing that and deliberately confusing um, and and uh, uh, and and misleading. And that is a greater problem. Um, I think people actually are quite a lot more sensible. I mean, there are plenty of people, um, as we saw in South Africa, who are completely <laughs> illiterate, um, you know, and who knew exactly um, how and where they wanted to put their thumbprint because they had a lifetime of experience and their, and their family's experience and, their, and, 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 and that before them. Um, so, but perhaps what you raise is a very interesting question uh, in terms of the sense of, of women's sense of entitlement and agency generally. So not just only in the case of um, do I, you know, I, I must vote the way my, my husband tells me or my child tells me, whatever, but just more generally in terms of how uh, women, how we are as women taking up political space and, and being entitled to occupy that and to make the decisions to say what I think and do counts as much. So I think it's a really important question, but I think it probably goes beyond more than just that act of, of, of you know, that needs to be sorted out almost before you get to the ballot box, perhaps. Thank you. Um, thanks very much. It was a great, great talk. And um, just an anecdotal thing on, on the last point, which is the first time canvassing last time um, at the election, I had a couple of people at the door who said, 
my son told me I'd got to vote <laughs> for, for, for Labour, actually, and my, my children are the ones that mm. were coming in and telling them, so it was a nice bit of reverse influence. But just going back to, actually, the political education point, you made the good, the very reminded us of the importance of the organised working-class women in Manchester who'd made a contribution and were quite crucial, together with the Labour um, Party, in getting the legislation um, passed. Where do you think the most promising sources of working-class women organising now, given the relative weakness now of the union movement, mm. um, compared with a lot of our history? Um, in uh, where, where would those organisations and where would that impetus and where would that contribution most promisingly come from, mm. do you think? Okay, thank you for that really impossibly difficult question, Anne Grant. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. Well, um, at, first, at, at first base, I probably would not quite so easily accept um, the idea that the infrastructure of and we and we are using you know we, we, you know we're being mindful that we're using working women. Um, I mean, we mentioned the GMB, for example. Um, you know what? What compri you know the, the the membership of the GMB comprising working women is a very very broad range uh, of women, but a lot of them are working in the service sector. A lot of them are on zero hours contracts. Um, but I suppose the one thing that I would say is that I do not uh, yet. Uh, whilst it's whilst it's much under siege, and why we're still very much aware of where all the different problems lie, you know, because there are histories in the un in the trade union movement and within the TUC and so on, um, it, it ain't over yet. And I still think that actually um, there is there is much evidence, particularly in terms of uh, of women's organisations within trade unions, because these people who these are the people who are being affected by zero hours contracts by austerity, um, by, by the debt, that this is not to say the burden of responsibility is not, of course, affecting everyone, but in terms of, of, of how that happens, um, that does seem to be the evidence. And um, so, first of all, I still think that we have an infrastructure, and it's really important, and we can see the evidence in the current Labour Party. For the first time, thank you very much, um, for some time, we have women representatives who are coming up through the labor movement again, and that hasn't that there was a long period that that didn't happen in, and it is, and they are really really talented, and they are they are organizers, and again because there there are you know there are still um, there are still those those structures, um, so I I would that's one place that I would say so I I would. Um, I, I really don't buy this, you know, the unions are dead thing at all. Um, that's, that's clearly not the evidence, and they are very much driven by the women. I mean, apart from the ones that, you know, obviously aren't, but you know, tackle them eventually. Um, I, think, um, I think momentum is an, interesting, um, is an interesting movement, an interesting group to look at. Um, because, because, precisely because of its diversity, actually, because it's an, it's an interesting uh, coalition of people coming in from lots of different places. Um, and I think that in your own example of people saying they're who, you know, people's children telling them how to vote, well, I think I've heard quite a bit of that as well from, from youngsters um, who are either members of Momentum or interested in it or interested in the change that's been happening in politics and are taking on their parents uh, in that 
in that regard, but that also it's not it's not such a class. You know, it's not as as. I mean, I think that whole argument about class and the unions as well is quite complicated at the moment. But certainly, in terms of those, you know, those those broad uh, coalitions. Um, but um, I also think. Um, it comes back to political parties again as well. Which one are you a member of and which one are you going to organize for um, and, and who are you going to place uh, your vote for? So can I, can I um, just take the opportunity to pick you up on something rather controversial you said towards the end of your talk? Um, where I can't, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you said something to the effect that feminism without uh, socialist democratization mm. or socialist democracy is, is kind of, you know, is empty or, mm. uh, uh, or makes no sense. I can't remember exactly how strongly you put it. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I mean, for myself, I would, I would agree with, I would probably be in agree with, agreement with you as to in order to think about what kinds of conditions you would need for a world in which men and women were genuinely able to be equal, mm. I think that for myself, I think that that requires a degree of um, social transformation mm. that certainly isn't compatible with simply a kind of free market organization mm. of society. So, uh, so, you know, I'd be happy to agree with you about mm. uh, what the ways in which one, might, one can make an argument that you can't have the kind of gender equality that I think we need without mm. the kind of social transformation that's more usually associated mm. with socialism, right? Mm. But, but the way you put it suggested that if you weren't also a socialist, you mm. couldn't be a feminist. Mm. And I'm not happy with that, because mm. it seems to me that, uh, in a sense, that's claiming the politics of feminism too much mm. for one side of the argument mm. and it seems to me that there are many many people who are very committed to um, feminist ideals broadly you know equality gender equality um, who disagree about what we need to do in order to mm. achieve that but I wouldn't want to take the term feminist away from them and I mean I don't know if that was I don't know if that was, you know, a particular, you know, polemical point that you were making, or if that genuinely is your your. Well, position. I think it is more or less genuinely my position. I mean, I think that um, the we've, I think we're being quite generous actually in how much we share feminism, um, because we have we have different options in terms of how we position exactly mm. what you were just talking about, um, and. And another way of looking at it would be to say that there might be one way of talking about people who are uh, part of the women's movement. Um, to me, to me, and, and maybe maybe it's a question of terminology, but feminism means something very specific, um, which is not equality with, to, which is not a struggle to be equal with men in the existing order of things, which is which is I think partly what you're saying, um, but is actually an understanding and an acknowledgement that there has to be sufficient alteration in the, uh, in, in, in the organization uh, of society to make that possible. And as much as I would like to think um, that there are other ways around it, I see absolutely no evidence that that, that is the case. 
um, and that I think that you know you you flagged it up yourself that it is this the the perennial problem uh, of how um, it is tied to uh, to the economic arrangement of society and and in a very old you know in, you know a very old sort of to to use you know another great feminist Frederick Engels but just that 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 role of women in the reproduction of 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 labour and the reproduction of of um, the family and and the whole bang shoot. So I just I think that yes, um, it is strong, and I am saying that that perhaps it might be more useful if we had a differentiation to say that the requirement um, uh, of uh, you know what 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 we're talking about in terms of a, a feminist approach is something different to I don't know what do you want to call it a woman's liberation approach women's equality, uh, I mean, that might help, actually, it might, and it might help women amongst each other, uh, you know, distribute exactly those discussions and arguments and say, well, actually, no, I'm, I don't want, you know, the structure of the family um, to be radically altered because I have a problem with that and I don't want to be there to be, rep- you know. Um, but I think we need some quite radical measures um, to really make interventions and change. We've had, we've got, had lots of change, Lots of change, and I don't want to, you know, be the the harbinger of doom. But it's not enough, and it should be more by now. And I do think, and I am aware this is a controversial view, but it's one that I've held for a long time, and I and I become stronger as I get older. If we, if just a certain number of women, not everybody, it, it would only take 14 or 15 percent, would would join my campaign to refrain from reproduction and not leave the workforce. And it just are the simple statistics of looking at what the impact, it's voluntary, it's a voluntary program, <laughs> right? Nobody's forcing you. But the evidence shows that, that it's a really small shift. You'd only need about 15 to 15, 17% of women simply just to, to, to then offset all those other things that are around the impact of, you know, it's not gonna solve everything. Um, but um, yeah, and I, I think you're right to pick me up on that, and I think it's something that I've turned over and, and thought a lot about. But I can't see any way around it. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, that was really interesting. Your last comment, um, and it reminded me um, of a book that I read recently um, by Jessa Crispin. I don't know if you've Bye. read it. Jessa Crispin. No, uh, what's she's it an American called? feminist, and she wrote a book called um, "Why I Am Not a Feminist: A Feminist Manifesto," and it explored some of the points that you raised there. And I just thought that if anyone wanted to look a little bit deeper into what um, Rachel was just saying, it would be a really good start. Because initially, I felt very conflicted when I started reading the book, but by the end of it, um, I was with you. <laughs> So thank you very much for introducing that idea to the room uh, and, and to some other women. Why I'm not a feminist. I saw some other nods here, so obviously <laughs> I'm like the only person in the room that hasn't read it. But thank you very much for that. I shall have a look at it. Thank you. It was really interesting. So are there any other um, thoughts, questions, contributions that people want to make? Just one, one over here. Thank you. So do you believe that 
in a purely meritocratic... You need to put it a bit closer oh. to yeah, I can't your... Hear you. Yes. Do you believe that in a purely meritocratic society, women are at a natural disadvantage due to Sorry, that? Sorry, a purely meritocratic society will? Yes. Do you think women are at a natural disadvantage because of their role as mothers and the raises of children, I suppose? Okay, so um, let me see, see whether I just heard you correctly because it was a little bit difficult. Um, so there were two things there. One was um, in, a, in a naturally meritocratic society, women would still be at a disadvantage because their roles of wives and mothers place them at a dis- not, disadvantage not in society. In a purely met- meritocratic society. Yeah, what's that? One where the... One where the uh, Every, it's sort of dog-eat-dog, dog, essentially. So you have... Oh, sorry, this hasn't been very well thought out by me. Um, where, where everyone only really has their own hard work and... Sorry, I give up. You know, it's okay. Can I, have a, can I have a go and, you in, yeah, you and interrupt go. me if I'm not going where you were going? Okay, so... Um, are, so are women at a... Um, a, nat- a natural was at a disadvantage in, in terms of motherhood and yeah. and and mater- well yes within the structure of how the society is organised it can be organised differently and and indeed we have seen where there have been changes both here and in other parts of the world when you do create you know the proper reward for women's labour and I mean <laughs> literally women's labour and support that it doesn't inevitably have to be that way so there's nothing natural about it. Um, it's that that is the outcome of, of you know of, of the structures that we find that we're living in. Um, in terms of anybody, in terms of um, it would be yeah, everybody being rewarded by their hard work. The, the economic system that we live in globally depends upon other people's hard work um, being exploited for a minority. That's just you know, so you've got to deal with that first. Um, and the question of meritocracy. It's a really interesting one because I'm not even quite sure what merit. It, it, it's, it, it, I'm often I'm often like really struck by that one, um, but I don't think this was your question. But I'm going to just give a, a view from where I sit in relation to being certainly in this country when I hear this argument about meritocracy and and people should just get you know jobs on the basis of their excellence and it shouldn't be gender biased. Well, yeah, that would be really nice apart from all the people who are getting jobs that they, for all sorts of reasons, that they are clearly not, you know, the, the idea that we have, a, the, the, the presumption that patriarchy is a meritocracy because it's favoured men who somehow are better at doing this stuff and that if it's an open field that you can have a corrective. If you put that, I mean, I, I'm very reluctant to make analogies because they're not very helpful between race and class and sexuality because they're not all the same structurally they don't function in the same way um but it but it's quite clear that if you were to try and try and put those arguments in the context of of any kinds of histories of oppression whether it's you know slavery the sugar trade uh, whether it's with women and so on the the asymmetries there's there's no there's nothing natural about it but i'm not quite sure whether i've um quite understood your questions had a go, though. Thank you very much. 
Well, I think at that point, this has been a very wide-ranging discussion, so thank you very much for that, Rachel, and, and thank you all for sitting here in this very, the end of this very hot day. <laughs> it <laughs> but, is uh, hot. But it's been well worth it. So can I now ask you to join, me, join with me in thanking Rachel Holmes for her, for her lecture. <laughs>